Judges chapter 3, and I think slightly differently from the sheet, I'm going to read from verse 12. Judges 3 and verse 12. So I have a bit of Christ which preached through books of the Bible. And this term, we're looking at this, uh, the extraordinary stories of the judges. So let's hear the word of the Lord our God. Judges 3 and verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of the roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed after the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then he had went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was, was subdued that day under the land of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we pray to you now simply the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was at a a meeting, uh, a meeting of uh, the ministers and the elders of our denomination, uh, very often we have a lecture. Someone comes to teach us. Uh, and you can imagine the scene normally it's someone, perhaps somebody lectures at a theological college coming to teach us their specialty, their corner of the Old Testament or whatever it may be. This one was slightly different. Uh, the man stood up 
He said, I want you now to turn to the person next to you and for one minute, just stare into their eyes. Now, this is a room full of largely middle-aged, you know, largely British men who suddenly had to stare at each other for a minute in silence. Okay, the lecturer said, I'm not, you're grown-ups. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. I'm not going to look. He kind of looked away. But go. I was sat next to a guy I've known a few years. Um, it, it, we probably lasted about six seconds uh, before one of us starts giggling, you know, you know, looking away. It's awkward, isn't it? If I was to ask you to do this now, I am absolutely sure that 99.9% of you would be cringing, wouldn't want to do it. And the 0.1% who, who do want to do it would find a very unwilling partner. The reason he started like that was to show how difficult we find it to be genuinely open with other people, genuinely, as it were, ourselves. And he moved from there to how we are with God. There is a link, we'll we'll come back to it later. But in the same way as we very, very much struggle to be genuinely open with one another, well, so too, we very, very much struggle to be genuinely open about who we are before the Lord God. We're aware, in other words, of our shame. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up, cover their nakedness, to shield themselves from one another. There was distance between them as soon as they put distance between themselves and God. We're aware of our shame. And shame is a big theme of this passage. Strange passage, isn't it? Strange story, a comedic story, meant to be a funny story that we've just had read. The first thing I want to think about, therefore, this morning is the shame of God's people. The shame of God's people. Uh, Really, we're in verses 12 to 14 here. Israel are the people of God. And if if this is your first time with us in this book of Judges, we're at that stage of, of, of history where God has rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. So they're in, but there's still lots of baddies about, still lots of other tribes who are causing trouble. And the problem is God's people who are meant to be this holy nation, this different nation, just as we are as the church, were meant to be different. But but God's people were becoming like the nations that stayed in the land. So you'll see down there in verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When people do evil in the sight of the Lord in the book of Judges, it doesn't mean they murder and steal, though they may have been doing that. It means they turn to other gods. It's a kind of technical expression, if you like. They turn to idols. Instead of living for for Yahweh, the Lord, their God, they start following Baal or Ashtoreth. And so in a pattern that we'll see repeated throughout the term as we look at the different judges, after the rebellion of God's people comes retribution. God sends punishment on them. Again, verse 12 Notice it's the Lord doing it. The Lord, that's God. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon, the king of Moab, a foreign nation, conquers Israel. And hence all the shame. This is very shaming for Israel. There's a bunch of details in in the text that, again, as 21st century Christians, we might kind of read over. But an Israelite would recognize as deeply humiliating. Uh, There's Eglon first. I noticed a few laughs that we read through. How is Eglon described? Children, did you notice this? Verse 17. Eglon, not just a fat man, but a very fat man. The Israelites haven't lost uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Vin Diesel or whoever the kind of he-man of Hollywood is at the moment. They have lost a jab of the hut. And who's he got with him? Well, Eglon is the king of Moab, verse 12. 
And he brings with him the Ammonites. It's very easy to get all these tribes confused, isn't it? But Moab and Ammon, if we'd read Genesis, they're the tribes descended from Lot's daughters who commit incest with their father. In other words, they're a deeply unclean people. This lot have beat us. And then to make matters worse, the Amalekites join in. The Amalekites are the first nation Israel beat on the way into the land. And now they've lost. The tables have turned. This is like losing to the French at cricket. Okay, it just shouldn't happen. Uh, the Amalekites, for those of you who are here for the Esther series, the Amalekites are the, the tribe that Haman, the kind of bad guy of that story, comes from. To add to the humiliation, what does fat King Eglon do? Verse 13, he sets up his capital in what's called the City of Palms, likely Jericho. Jericho was the first city the Israelites conquered when they got into the land. Do you remember the story? They march around the walls and it falls. It's the first place they take, the scene of their triumph. And now fat, very fat King Eglon is set up his throne there. It's like Hitler appearing on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. Totally humiliating. And not only that, but you see verse 14, this, this conquest lasts 18 years. It's not a slapdash invasion, not in and out and then driven off. No, 18 years. That's longer than many of you who have been alive. What were you doing 18 years ago? Can you remember? Imagine being under subjugation all that time. And if you're a faithful Israelite, you're, you're singing the Psalms. Great is our Lord. Mighty and majestic is his name. And you can hear the Ammonites sniggering. Yeah, really majestic, isn't he? You say you worship the God of heaven and earth. You say you believe that your God created the stars and the seas and the beasts within them. You can't even look after your own country. And then verse 19, one last humiliation. Eglon sets up idols at Gilgal. Gilgal was the place where Israel was circumcised when they came into the land for the first time. It means the place where our shame was taken away. In that sense, it was, as it were, a kind of holy site. It had significance, the place where God cleansed us. And now here are idols. This is St. Paul's Cathedral turned into a mosque. God's people have been humiliated as we begin Judges 3. Because of their rebellion, they are utterly humiliated now now judges is, is a strange book okay it's, it's not often you read of incredibly fat men being pierced with swords and well, we'll get to the gory details later but judges is a book ultimately of rescuers we heard last week that that judge can be a confusing word we think of the guy in the wig who gives you know sentences to those who've been condemned and there's an element of that but very often the characters we call judges are actually called well, do you see what they're called in our passage? It wasn't judge, was it? They're called deliverers. God raises up Ehud in verse 15, and he is a deliverer. Deliverers. We could just as well call this book the book of deliverers. Now, deliverer, you can almost sort of, you can almost hear it in the Hebrew. Deliverer is, is, is Yasha in Hebrew. Yasha, a bit like Joshua. Joshua. Uh, the word has the same sort of uh, origin. And Joshua, you might know children, is the Old Testament equivalent of, of Jesus. It means rescuer. 
Joshua, the Old Testament figure, and supremely Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a rescuer. And, and so this book is going to be full of pictures of Jesus. Ehud, strange as his story is, is going to be a picture, a pointer, a shadow of the great rescue that Jesus will bring. And so therefore, as we work through it this term over the next few weeks, we don't want to work through judges thinking, well, how can I be like Ehud? How can I be like Samson or Gideon or Deborah or Barak? Very rarely will that be the kind of the point of the story. Rather, we'll look at these figures and see how we can see through them the Lord Jesus Christ and get another angle on the great rescue we've received in him. Uh, This week, we begin with this people covered in shame, humiliated. And we're not so far from them, are we? We're not so far from them in 21st century Leeds. The gap may be three, three and a half millennia. But we are a people who know what it is to be shamed. The family man. Upstanding member of the business community. But he spends the night watching porn when his wife goes to bed early. The church kid who's learned how to pretend to fit in, to say the right words, but terrified the parents might find out what she really did last Saturday. The respected older church member, peer of the community, looked up to by the younger folk in church, a great reputation but haunted by their past sin and terrified it might get exposed. Shame, well, shame can have different meanings in the Bible, but but shame, as we're thinking about it this morning, is that, that sense of guilt, that felt sense of guilt that comes to us when our sin comes to mind. If your phone buzzed now, I'm sure you wouldn't look at it if your phone buzzed now. But let's say hypothetically, your phone buzzed. It's a withheld number. And up on the screen, you you see the message. We know everything and we're going to tell everyone. We know everything, we're going to tell everyone. Just, just, Just almost feel what that would be like. Some of us, our cheeks will be flushing a little bit as our mind races to think what is it they know but probably our minds have gone to something for other of us our, our heart will be beating a little bit faster some of us that the stomach is beginning to knot our ears are beginning to turn pink we have all of us if we're honest things we are deeply ashamed about whether in the last week month year decade or many many years ago we have plenty to be ashamed about. We all know shame. And that's why this story of Ehud and the story of the Lord Jesus is such good news. If it begins, Judges 3, with the shaming of God's people, it moves on to the shaming of God's enemy. Verses 15 through 25, the shaming of God's enemy. Uh, We left Israel conquered for those 18 years. And then in verse 15, we, we get... Well, we get repentance. There is this cycle in Judges. Rebellion of God's people when they turn to idols. Retribution where God punishes them. But then repentance, they cry out. Verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And repentance is followed by rescue. He sends this deliverer, this saviour, Ehud. And it's a great story, isn't it? Ehud is a Benjaminite. Benjamin means son of my right hand. 
that Ehud is left-handed, we read. It may be that he's just literally left-handed. Uh, the, the word is a strange one. It's, it's not quite left-handed. It, it basically means um, not able to use my right hand. It may be that he's disabled in his right hand, or it may be that he's sort of trained to use his right hand. Either way, here is a left-handed member of the tribe of the sons of my right hand. And he makes himself uh, a sword, a double-edged sword. It's about the length of your kind of um, end of your fingers to your elbow. And because he's left-handed, he straps it to his right thigh. Now, children, most people are right-handed, aren't they? And so if you're a soldier going into battle, you put your sword on your left-hand side so you can pull it out with your right hand and start fighting. But Ehud is able to hide his and strap it because it's short to his left-hand thigh underneath his cloak. Uh, he's been chosen to bring the tribute, presumably grain and food, to fat king Eglon. He's already, therefore, a leader of God's people, it seems. And he brings the, the tribute, gives it to Eglon, heads off with those who, who've come with him to help carry all, all the stuff. And then at Gilgal, he wakes up. Verse at 19. At 19, at Gilgal, remember that place where God, well, where the, the Israelites were circumcised as they came into the land, that place of cleansing. Gilgal means the place of rolling away, the rolling away of our sin. There, it's almost as if he, he does a double take and he turns back. Maybe he planned it before, we don't know. But he turns back, he leaves his friends and he heads back to fat King Eglon. And he says to him, verse 19, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Literally a secret word. That The word message there or word, it's, it's, it's a kind of ambiguous word. It can mean a, a word or a message, but it can also just mean a thing. I've got a secret thing for you, Eglon. And indeed, he has got a secret thing for Eglon. Uh, Eglon's excited. Ehud says, it's actually a secret word, a secret thing from God. And so all the attendants are sent out. They're in Eglon's palace. Everybody's out of the room. Perhaps Eglon thinks, well, I'm going to get more tribute or some information on how the Israelites are going to rebel or uh, a secret instructions as to where the, the Israelite gold is hidden. And he wants it all for himself. Eglon and Ehud are alone. Ehud says it's a secret message from God, and it is customary in, the, in that culture. Uh, when you hear a message from God, you, you stand. And so fat King Eglon kind of heaves himself out of his throne, stands up. You can imagine him on the throne, higher than Ehud. Ehud at that moment reaches down to his sword, pulls it out, and thrusts it into fat King Eglon's belly. See what happens? It's disgusting, isn't it? Verse 22, the whole story slows right down. The hilt also went in after the blade. It's like there's no crossbar on the sword. And the fat closes over the blade. His body is so enormous, it sucks in the whole blade. Ehud falls, sorry, Eglon falls down. And verse 22, the, well, the ESV says the dung came out. Dung, there's a polite word for it. This is the Bible, the Holy Word of God, the dung that, well, you know what has come out, children, of Eglon. There he is, lying in his own feces, his own excrement, in a hot Middle Eastern country. Totally humiliated, tricked, conquered, and lying in, well, excrement, his own excrement. Ceremonially, therefore, unclean. Uh, the comedy continues, though. Verse 22, uh, Ehud closes the doors, 
uh, sneaks out, whether he nods to the guards and just sort of wanders off whistling or whether he escapes out a window, who knows? But because the doors are shut, the guards, the Fat King's guards are outside and after a while they think, oh, he's been a while. And after a while you imagine they're beginning to smell something and they wait. Do you hear the story? You can sort of almost imagine the two goons, can't you? Either side of the door, verse 24. They think, um, surely he's, he's relieving himself. In other words, children, surely he's, he, he must be on the loo. You know why they think that? They can smell it, can't they? And they wait, verse 25, until the point of embarrassment. And eventually they go in and find him slaughtered on the ground. The shamer of God's people is shamed. The humiliator of God's people is himself humiliated. Justice has struck. Now, what on earth has that got to do with us? How on earth is that a picture of the rescue that we receive? Well, we do have an enemy, don't we? The great enemy of God's people is Satan. Uh, the Satan is the accuser. That's what Satan means. He is the one who sends you that text. I know what you're really like. He is the one who whispers it in your ear. R- real Christians, I mean proper Christians, not fakers, proper Christians like the ones you're sat next to at church, they read their Bibles every day and pray continually. R- real Christians do. I've not seen you doing that. Uh, real Christians... Uh, Well, real real Christians, when they repent of a sin, they know that means they'll never do it again. And so they don't. You just tried to repent for something you've done 25 times before. That's not really repenting. You're not a real Christian. Real Christians don't watch what you watched. Real Christians are all virgins on their marriage night. Real Christians do evangelism because they love the Lord and want to share him with other people. Real, well... On he goes. Satan means the accuser and he is good at it. He is good at it. He is good at shaming you. But but he himself has been defeated by the Lord Jesus. He himself has been put to shame. Keep a figure in Judges 3 and come on with me to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians in the New Testament, children. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And hear how Paul, who wrote this letter, describes what God has done. Verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2. You, you Colossian Christians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you you who were shameful, who were guilty. God has made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here we go. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. God at the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities. That doesn't mean Caesar or the prime minister or the president. The rulers and authorities are the spiritual rulers and authorities, particularly the forces of evil. So Satan and his cohort. At the cross, says Paul, he was 
put to shame. Satan was put to shame. How? What well, do you see the logic? Verse 13 and 14, we're forgiven because the record of debt, the, our record of shame, all the things that come to your mind that make you blush and flush, all of that was nailed to the cross. Jesus bore it. And therefore, once you trust him, Satan has no accusations left against you. He is speechless. Imagine a lawyer who goes into court to accuse someone and as he opens the dossier to make his case, realises there is no evidence anymore. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, who used to tell wild stories that you can never tell whether they're true or exaggerated or what, but they're great stories. He, he speaks of um, waking up in the middle of the night and Satan standing at the foot of his bed. Again, whether he's dreaming or embellishing, who knows? But it's a great story. He wakes up and Satan's at the end of the bed and Satan says to him, Luther, Luther, you call yourself a great churchman, a great preacher of the gospel. But I know what you've done. And he begins listing Luther's sins. And Luther says he lied, lay in bed, listening. On and on Satan went. And when Satan finished, Luther says to him, thank you, said Satan. But is that it? Let me remind you of a few more of my sins that you've missed. And let me remind you still further of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid for everyone and covered them. And in whose righteousness I stand forgiven. Luther understands. Satan has nothing to accuse God's people of because, not because we're not guilty, but because Christ has paid for it all. Eglon, the fat king, is shamed. Satan, the accuser, the shamer of God's people, has been put to shame. There is no accusation that therefore can really stand against you. Once you've trusted Christ. But there's a twist. A twist I want to cover before we close. See, in our story, Eglon, the fat king, is shamed. And Ehud, the judge, is the, is the glorious one. But, but as we close, I want to think thirdly and finally about the, the shaming of God's son. The shaming of God's son. You see, with Jesus, it is different to Ehud and Eglon. For Jesus to rescue, he had to swap places with us. He had to take responsibility for our shame and that meant Jesus had to be humiliated Eglon Eglon means calf he's described as a very fat calf who eventually falls on the sword of God's judgment that the language of the passage almost is portraying him as a sacrificial animal a sacrificial calf and Ehud's name means where is the majesty the judge the rescuer means where is the majesty Ask that question of Jesus. Where is the majesty of Jesus seen? Incredibly, counterintuitively, it is seen when Jesus becomes not just Ehud, but Eglon. He takes our shame and is slaughtered in our place. The sword of judgment falls on him in order that it might not fall on you and me. There is the majesty of Jesus humiliated for us John if you've got a friend and someone says oh you know who are they you might describe what they do or perhaps it's someone famous oh uh, who's Andy Murray he's the person who won Wimbledon 
Who's Alexander Bell? He's the person who invented the telephone. Someone says, who's God? We tend to go for the glorious stuff. He's the one who made the world. He's the one who sustains the world. We could equally say, God, you want me to tell you who God is? What he is like? He's the one who became a little baby. Needed to be put in nappies. He's the one who couldn't walk or talk. He grew up in a back-end country in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East. He's the one who eventually was rejected by everybody. He was arrested, stripped naked, spat at. Just stop and imagine that. For your sake, God has had saliva running down his face. Has anyone ever spat in your face? It's the ultimate humiliation, isn't it? But Jesus was willing to bear that for you. Laughed at, mocked. For the joy set before him, he bore that humiliation. And that means your shame has been completely covered, completely covered by Jesus. And when you see that, it it means two things. First of all, it means you're free, you're set free. It's so hard to really believe that. Even forgiven Christians carry around this burden of shame. We don't take it to the cross. When we sin again or, or past sin is brought to mind or Satan whispers, instead of going straight to the cross for renewal of forgiveness, as it were, we try and make up for it in a thousand other ways. We try and cover over it ourselves. We're like the kind of sweaty teenage boy coming out of the gym who thinks a couple of sprays of Lynx deodorant on his T-shirt is going to do the job. But it doesn't. It comes out in so many ways. Some of us become perfectionists. We can't allow weakness in our life in any way. We can't have any faults in any area of our lives. No cracks. I mustn't fail at all. Other of us become fixers. We're aware of our deep shame. We try and bury it deep down in our psyche instead of bringing it to the cross. And we think we can cover over it or distract ourselves from it by by fixing other people, helping other people. Always a project, always a person to be working on. We become very controlling. We can't let them go because you can't risk not being the kind of good person who fixes other people. All along driven very often by a deep sense of guilt and shame. Some of us become challengers. We have one or two areas where we think life is going pretty well for us and we see the faults in other people. And we're very happy to point them out. Maybe a hobby horse we have. We're geniuses at spotting liberalism creeping into the church or compromise. And we'll go at everybody, bashing them. Because if we can knock everyone else off balance, it'll perhaps calm our own guilty conscience. Still other business, we become runners, we just run away. The safest way not have to, to, to not have to confront our shame, like Adam and Eve, is to distance ourselves from other people. Hopefully if no one gets too close, then no one will ever point out or know the deep darkness in my history. On and on we could multiply it. We all do it. But none of these things actually cover our sin. None of them cover our shame. But Jesus has completely only he can cover it and he will cover it freely and when he realized that it is just so freeing Spurgeon the great Baptist preacher of the Victorian era said to his church once tear off your masks the church was never meant to be a masquerade children a masquerade is like a mask ball where we all put on different marks I saw some of you little ones at a party yesterday coming out wearing kind of tiger masks and giraffe masks and we don't need to put on masks and pretend we're better than we are the Lord Jesus is our righteousness You are free, and you're free, therefore, 
to serve. The story ends with Ehud calling the people of Israel to him and together they go and wipe out the enemy. Once you're free and realise you're free, shame covered, then you can stop living for all these other agendas, trying to make yourself feel better about yourself, trying to cover or distract your sin and commit yourself to serving the Lord Jesus. Failure that you are. And wonderfully, he involves you in that work. He'll welcome anyone. The strange story at the end of Shamgar. Shamgar's not an Israelite. He's the son of Anath. Anath is a pagan goddess. But still God welcomes him in when he turns to him. Whether for the first time this morning or the hundredth, come back to Christ. He welcomes you. He will never put you to shame because he has been shamed for you. And you are free, therefore, to serve him in joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that Jesus has paid it all. And we ask that in your mercy and in your goodness, you would protect us from the temptation of the evil one and from despair. And in your kindness, help us again to know the freedom which Christ has bought and liberate us to serve you in light of that freedom. Pour your spirit on us again, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.